You're listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonparal for Thursday, February 9th, 2023. I'm Cami Marquardt from Drake University. Here is our first story. Rodeo's future unclear. Tax owner, owner charged with tax evasion. The future of the rodeo saloon is up in the air after owner Frank Hoover and his wife Cindy pleaded guilty last week to state income tax evasion. Frank Hoover, 59, and Cindy Hoover, 62, each agreed to plead guilty to one count of state income tax evasion, a Class D felony, while Frank also pleaded guilty to one count of lying on the bar's liquor license application, a misdemeanor, according to court documents. The rodeo, located on 164 West Broadway in Council Bluffs, has been closed since last Thursday. There is a sign taped to the front door stating that the bar is temporarily closed for plumbing work. A rodeo employee told the Daily Nonparal that staff members were told the bar was closing temporarily because of plumbing issues. They were not giving a date or time frame for when the bar would reopen. An information request with the city's public works department revealed that there are no recent plumbing permits for this address at this time. An attorney for the Hoovers declined to comment Wednesday. The recent legal troubles is not the first time the Hoovers have run afoul of law enforcement. They were arrested in March 2021 on suspicion of ongoing criminal criminal conduct, including various tax evasion and reporting violations. At that time, authorities suspected Frank Hoover of committing tax fraud. The Iowa Department of Revenue has reportedly not received personal individual income tax filings for either Frank or Cindy Hoover since 2017, as well as no corporate filings for the Rodeo or the Cube Ultra Lounge, also owned by Frank Hoover. The Cube was located next to the Rodeo and was an ongoing headache for city officials. In 2019, the Council Bluffs Police Department advised the City Council to not renew the liquor license for the Cube, citing 16 calls to the bar, which led to seven arrests, including one for assault in which the victim suffered a fractured orbital bone. In 2021, the police Chief Tim Carmody told the council for the first time in his career as a police chief, he supported the denial of a bar's liquor license. I can't in good faith tell you I support the CUBE's renewal, Carmody said at the January 25, 2021 study session prior to the council meeting. At that same study session, Council Bluffs Police Lieutenant Chad Greer said that the CUBE doesn't bring us anything but problems. The council voted to stay 4-1 to one to deny the Cube's liquor license. Hoover filed an appeal, which was denied later that year, leading to the closing of the Cube, which had at some point been rebranded as the Beer House. At a May 2022 meeting, city council members voted to deny the renewal of Rodeo's liquor license, citing Frank Hoover's lack of good moral character. Nothing has changed with Frank, council member Chad Hammond said. There have been a lot of issues with Frank's with Frank Hoover's establishments. The investigation that led to the Hoover's March 2021 arrest also determined that Frank Hoover had allegedly underreported more than $1.4 million in sales revenue to the state of Iowa for the two bars since January 2018. Getting Frank Hoover out of the bar business is a big win for the city, Hayman said in an interview with the non At the end of the day, it wasn't to achieve what I wanted to do or what Mayor Matt Walsh wanted to do or Tim Carmody or it was really what we felt collectively in, was in the best interest of the people of Council Bluffs, Hinman said. And the fact that we have many establishments selling alcohol in this community that don't have shootings, that don't have stabbings, that don't have people getting maced, it goes to show you 
you can do this and not have those issues happen. Frank Hoover could not do it without those issues happening. As part of the Hoover's plea agreements, they both agreed to never again apply for a liquor license in the state of Iowa. I think there are some public safety goals with this prosecution, said Potomac County County Attorney Matt Weibler. So we tried to listen to the police department and the Alcoholic Beverage Division and Division of Revenue, and it seemed like the number one goal was to get the defendants out of the bar business in Iowa. In addition to being unable to apply for an Iowa liquor license, Frank and Henny were both also given two years probation and a $1,025 fine. Court documents state that the Iowa Department of Revenue seized slightly more than $163,000 from the Hoovers, which will be used to pay restitution to the state. The total amount owed by the owed will be determined by the department. Both Frank and Cindy Hoover had initially been charged with 24 counts, ranging from tax evasion to fraud to money laundering, before agreeing to their plea deals. This was a complete team of effort, Hayman said. I'd like to thank the Council City. I'd like to thank the Council Bluffs Police Department, the City Attorney's Office, the County Attorney, and especially my peers on the City Council for having the courage to fight for the people of Council Bluffs and keep their safety their top priority. Clinic to offer low-cost pet vaccines. Microtrips also available Saturday. Support our local animal shelter has offered a low-cost vaccine and microchip clinic for pet owners in Council Bluffs and the Greater Omaha Metro politan area for more than 10 years. This year's soulless event will be held Saturday, February 11th from 1 to 4 p.m. in Bomber's 2803 Canesville Boulevard. It's for the health and well-being of the animals around us, said Sarah Richardson, who volunteers with the soulless. There are a lot of people who can't afford regular vaccines. If they get vaccines, especially rabies, they're able to get them properly licensed also. The timing is calculated, as yearly pet licenses are due in March in Council Bluffs, Omaha, and other area communities. Costs include $10 for babies' vaccination for both cats and dogs, $10 Bordetella for dogs, $15 DHHP for dogs, and $20 FVRCP or Felix for cats. Microtrips are available for $25, which includes the national registration fee. Only cash will be accepted, no checks or credit cards. Richard Sid said that last year, about 250 dogs and around 50 cats showed up for the event. We could have handled a little bit more, she said. Dr. Barbara Lee from Valley View Veterinary Clinic will volunteer her time to administer the vaccinations. It's a wonderful opportunity to vaccinate a microtrip animals so they stay healthy and with their owners, Richardson said. Bidding extended for new football scoreboard, Lewis Central School Board votes. It's going to take another play before Lewis Central Community School District can get a new school board. The district only received one bid on the project from digital scoreboards in Venice, Florida, and it was, well, a long shot. The current bid is over 100000 more than any estimate I would have given you, Superintendent Brent Housing told the Board of Education during its meeting Monday. Unfortunately, the local companies were expected to bid are not ready yet due to wait times on electrical bids from their subcontractors. The district is asking for a more digital scoreboard for the football field that can be reconfigured to display information on soccer, track, or other sports. Show replays or even play movies, Hosing said. Since the Iowa Western Community College also uses the field, the college has agreed to play for 20% of the cost. 
The board held a public hearing on the scoreboard. However, on housing's recommendations, the board voted to deny all bids and accept new bids through February 17th. Hopefully the board can get a bid to accept during its February 20th meeting. Another business, the board approved the purchase of a new language arts curriculum for grades 2 through 5 at Titan Hills Intermediate School from Heman at cost of $117,268.97. Accepted the retirement of Dave Black, school improvement specialist, effective at the end of the contract year. Lack of training, cause of negative perception of law enforcement. The Council Bluffs Police Department Uniform Division responds to 911 calls and includes traffic, canine, crisis negotiation, and emergency services. Received more than 51,000 calls for service in 2022, according to Captain Scott Milner, the department commander. Milner, who joined the CBPD in 1984 spoke at the February 2nd Citizens Police Academy class about wide-ranging services his department provides and the recruitment process and training new officers received when they're hired. The Uniform Division currently has 120 officers on staff, though a few are set to retire later this year, Miller said. And replacing retired officers has gotten more difficult over the last few years. When I started in 84, the testing process for 500 to 600 applicants, you showed up and tested at that time, Milner said. This last go-around, we only had 59 apply. Of the 59 applicants, only 15 actually showed up on test day, which consists of a 15 exam, of a fitness exam and a written exam that covers reading comprehension, math, writing, and reasoning skills. Of those 15, about one-third were unable to pass the fitness test, and a couple did not pass the written test, leaving eight candidates who made it to the background check. With those eight candidates, just from the information that they've turned in on their background investigation, we're going to wash two right off the bat, Milner said. From a pool of 59 applicants, only six will sit for interviews. The whole hiring thing is just, it's bad right now. It's only going to get worse, said Sergeant Michael Hernandez, a CBPD field training officer. It's probably not going to get better until, as a society, we are more accepting that law enforcement is a good career to have. It's just that there have been so many bad things in the news that nobody wants to do the job anymore. February 2nd CPA class was held the week after the body camera footage of five Memphis police officers who beat a 29-year-old tired Nicholas to death was released. And while not specifically mentioning that incident, Hernandez believes that the answer to this bait of police violence has been witnessed over the last few years is more and better training. When our recruits get this training, they know how to properly handle potentially dangerous situations, and they don't go crazy like some of the stuff you see on TV, where I think they just don't have the training, Hernandez said. Or they don't do enough of it to know a better way to handle it what they did. You know, you've seen several things on TV that were just insane, and that's just a total lack of training. CBPD applicants who get through the background check and interview process are then sent to the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy in Johnston, Iowa, northwest of Des Moines, where they will receive nearly 600 hours of training over 16 weeks on everything from how to conduct a death notification and testify in court to defensive tactics and prosper use of force. According to the ILIA website, recruits also receive 14 hours of unbiased police training, which cover things like implicit bias and how to interact with 
certain communities like black, Latinx, special needs, or deaf. According to the ILIA website, recruits also received 14 hours of unbiased police training, which covered things like implicit bias and how to interact with certain communities like black, Latinx, special needs, or deaf. After recruits graduate from ILIA, they return to Council Bluffs and undergo another eight days of mini-academy, which CBPD uses to fill in some of the gaps in education that ILIA may have not covered or not covered enough. The mini-academy came about because for the most part, nearly all of our training staff and all of our instructors saw major faults in what was being taught at the academy or was not being taught at the academy. Fernandez says, this was really important to us because we had officers that just weren't ready. They got out of the academy and they weren't even close. They couldn't clear a building. They didn't know how to do a felony stop. Like if you had to expose them on it day one, they would have no clue. Hernandez was quick to point out that he doesn't fault the academy or its instructions for recruits not being fully prepared. They didn't have enough time in the academy, he said. I think the academy truly has good intentions. They just couldn't do it all in the minimal time they had. The CBPD's mini-academy includes instruction by Potomac County and Council Bluffs attorneys in local criminal law, and recruits receive more traffic unit training. They do that at the academy, Hernandez said. The problem is they only need to get one or two at the academy. Only doing it one or two times isn't going to make you very proficient. In the mini-academy, recruit practice traffic stops for about half a day with only a few people so that everyone can receive the same hands-on instruction before going to go out on patrol. They can really get into weeds about some of the things and safety things that they may not be doing correctly at the time, Hernandez said. I really believe that we have some of the best instructors in all of our areas and states, and I would put them up against any of the other agencies. Council Bluffs police officers also receive additional training throughout their careers. Once you're on, we have continued training all the time, Milner said. We train quarterly law updates, physical testing, defensive tractives, firearms, those kinds of things. We do a lot of online training now. The company that we do our policies through, we actually call them daily training bulletins. Those come out four or five every week and a half. They read a scenario based on our police policies, and there's a question at the end with multiple guessing, so it's an ongoing process. Reynolds signs 3% increase school funding into law. Reynolds signs 3% school funding increase into law. Des Moines, Iowa. K-12 schools will get a 3% funding boost under a bill Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law on Tuesday. After expected reductions in funding to area education associates, the law provides a 106.8 million boost to Iowa public K-12 schools. The amount is higher than the 2.5 increase Reynolds proposed at the beginning of the session. That bill, Senate File 192, passed the House 59-40, with four Republicans breaking the majority party to vote against the measure. All Democrats voted no, and one Republican representative, David Sieg of Glenwood, did not vote. The bill passed in the Senate last week, mostly along party lines, make it eligible for Reynolds' signature. Reps Chad Ingalls of Randalia, Megan Jones of Sioux Rapids, Brian Lowe's of Borderon and Thomas Moore of Griswold were the House Republicans who voted against the bill. Reynolds signed the bill into law in private on Tuesday. This result of a $1.19 billion increase in K-12 education funding since 2012, Reynolds said in a press release, this is our investment represents 
our commitment to an excellent education system for all Iowans. Representative Craig Johnson, a Republican from Independence, said that he was happy with the funding provided and noted lawmakers had increased school funding by around $700 million over the past seven years. Being predictable is what we do here in Iowa. It is important to us, he said. This bill will do that. Being affordable, we're going to afford this again this year and next year and the year after that. Democrats protested the funding and floor debate on Tuesday, saying the proposal was not enough to keep up with the rate and prevent loss of the programs at schools consultation. Democrats proposed an amendment that would bump up the funding increase to 5.8%. That amendment failed, 39.60. We know when we were passing and talking about the voucher bill, we had plenty of money. Now all of a sudden that's fit into our budget, said Republican Sharon Stuckman, D. Mason City. Our half a million kids need to fit into our budget. Republican lawmakers in January passed a bill which Reynolds signed into law that allows parents to take advantage of education saving accounts valued at the state's full pupil allocation to pay for private school education. The program is estimated to cost $106.9 million in its first year and $345 million once fully implemented. The Iowa Education Association, the union representing public school teachers, ridiculed and decided to spend millions on private schools while increasing the state aid to public schools by 3%. The organization had lobbied for a 4% increase. It is smoke and mirrors for them to claim our public schools are receiving more than funding than ever before. ISEA President Mike Bayrick said in a statement on Tuesday, Public school funding has not kept up with the rising costs and inflation for 12 of the last 13 years. Inflation coupled with fixed costs means that no matter the EBB and flow of school Student population, our schools need more funding to provide a robust and healthy student environment. Democrats in floor debates brought up comments and conversations with school administrators who said their budgets were stretched thin and needed additional state funding. Republican Sue Connell, a a Democrat from Marshalltown, said one superintendent was concerned about the rising cost of fuel and other fixed costs that aren't flexible year over year. He was at his wit's end, she said. He said, how will we go on in our small school districts? Our rural communities and our urban communities are hurting. They have stretched and stretched over the last few years. Over the last decade, funding for Iowa K-12 schools has increased a little over 2% on average each year. A 3% increase is the highest increase in school funding since 2015. Face of the day. Tired of winter and cold, icy, snowy activities or sports? Well, you're in luck. Dance to the Beat, an annual fundraising event sponsored by the Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital Charitable Foundation. It's an excellent way to have some indoor fun while helping new and current Jenny Edmondson cardiac patients meet some of their financial needs during a stressful time in their lives. Stacy Tams, Senior Dis- Director at the Methodist Physicians Clinic for the last 16 years, can testify to that. My involvement with Dance of the Beat began in the infancy stages of the event, Tam said. It has been incredible watching Dance of the Beat evolve over the last few years, changing menus due to the increased size of the event, as well as increased community involvement and participation from different organizations. This is definitely one of my favorite events in our community. Married to husband Ben for 16 years, Stacy is the proud mom of two busy children. Her son Jace is 16-year-old and a junior at Trenner High School. Daughter Kate is 10 years old and a fourth grader at Turner Elementary. When asked why this event is so important to her, Stacy's reply was strong and heartfelt. 
Dance to the beat is really important to me for several reasons, she said. Helping families affected by cardiovascular disease, working with newly diagnosed patients, and helping current patients navigate this disease process can be such a financial burden. Our collective goal is to alleviate more of the stress for patients, and Dance to the Beat Events Funds does that. Money raised from this incredible event gives directly back to cardiovascular patients at Jenny Edmondson. I hope to see everyone on February 17th for this amazing event as we as a community help to support our Jenny Edmondson patients. To purchase your $30 Dance to the Beat ticket or learn more, contact the Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital Foundation or jefffoundation.org or by calling 712-396-6040. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Peril for February 9th, 2023. On IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Cami Marquardt from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from you listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Obituaries. Norma Johnson. Norma Johnson, age 85, passed away on February 5th, 2023. She was born on August 24, 1937, to William and Helen Taylor Thacker, Jr., Council Bluffs, Iowa. Norma graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School with the class of 1955. She married Paul Johnson in 1959 and was a member of St. Paul Lutheran Church. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her son, Stephen Johnson, Norma survived by her husband, Paul Johnson, son, Michael Johnson, grandson, Brett Johnson, brother, Marvin Donna Thacker Sr., a host of other family and friends. Visitation will be held from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Hoy Kalnowski Funeral Home on Friday, February 10th, 2023. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at Hoy Kalnowski Funeral Home on Saturday, February 11th, 2023. In Terman is the Memorial Park Cemetery. James O. Brooke. James O. Brooks, age 81, passed away February 5th, 2023. Preceding death by parents Lewis and Oscar Brooks, foster parents Evelyn and Ralph Travis, wife Donna Brooks' son Timothy Brooks, brothers Art and Chet Brooks. Survived by daughters Tessa McCart, Tracy Kurt Dankoff, Tara Michael Pattern. Grandchildren Robert McCart, Ciara McCart, Savannah Bauman, Ashley Trevor Raffrey, Curtis Dankiff, Travis Lisa Pattern, Nova Pattern, Madeline Robbie Wills, great-grandchildren, Mason Patton, Emma Raftery, Alini Hannah Comstick, and Killian Proplish, brother Richard Dick Brooks, many nieces, nephews, and companion Shirley Fluxon. Visitation Friday, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Mayor Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Services Saturday, 10 a.m. at the Bayless Park Chapel and Tournament Memorial Park Cemetery. Shooting at Nebraska Target highlights gun law laps. Omaha, Nebraska. In the last three years of his life, Joseph Jones was repeatedly sent to psychiatric hospitals because of his schizophrenia and delusions that a drug cartel was after him. The Nebraska man once laid down on a highway in Kansas because he wanted to be run over by a truck, but officers tackled him as he ran in front of the vehicles. Time and time again, his family and the police took away his guns. But Jones was able to keep legally buying firearms, and law enforcement could do little. 
Once a deputy returned a Glock pistol to him, with, while another time the sheriff's department confiscated his gun, although it, keeping it raised questions. Last month, Jones opened fire in an Omaha Target store using a legally purchased AR-15 rifle. No one was hit by Jones' gunfire, but police shot and killed the 32-year-old as shoppers fled in panic. This episode demonstrates how gun laws fail to keep firearms out of the hands of deeply troubled people despite national effort to pass red flag laws in recent years. Mental health experts say most people with mental illness are not violent and are far less likely to be victims of violent crime. Access to firearms is a big part of the problem. For him to be allowed to buy a firearm, there's no excuse for it, Jones. Uncle Larry Jackson Jr. said. It was just inevitable that something was going to happen. In August 2021, a deputy was called because Dirksen didn't want to return a gun to his nephew, who had just been released from a psychiatric hospital. Dirksen said that Jones was paranoid, had been hearing voices, and had traveled through several states fearing a cartel was chasing him, according to the Sarpy County Sheriff's Office incident report. But Jones told his department that he was taking medication, he felt fine, and had no plans to hurt anyone. The gun was clean. The only conviction Jones had while was for a DUI he collided with another vehicle on his way home from a bar years earlier. I had no reason, the deputy wrote in the report, to believe Joseph could not possess a firearm. Nebraska is in among the 19 states with a red flag law, also known as an extreme risk protection orders. They are intended to restrict the purchase of guns or temporarily remove them from people who may hurt themselves or someone else. A red flag law has been proposed for Nebraska this year, but hasn't received a legislative hearing yet. This is kind of an example of screaming out for an extreme risk protection order, said Chris Brown, the president of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. It actually breaks my heart that that did not happen here. Federal law has banned some mentally ill people from buying guns since 1968, including those deemed a danger to themselves or others, who have been involuntarily committed or judged not guilty by reason of insanity or competent to stand trial. But it sets what Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives spokesman John Hamm describes as a very high bar. In order for someone's name to be submitted to the FBI for inclusion on the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, they must undergo a hearing in which they are deemed unable to take care of their personal business because of mental illness. The law describes it as uh, adjudicated as a mental defective. Every state has a different process, but the multiple three-day voluntary commitments the Jones family and law enforcement records describe did trigger such a hearing. A couple of years ago, Jones' family was so desperate that they considered going through the process. They are familiar with some of the court's processes because of Jones' mother, also has schizophrenia, is ill functioning, and had to be committed to a group home. But they decided not to pursue that because they were able to persuade law enforcement to intervene to get Jones into a mental hospital. Recently, Jones called an FBI to report some some harassment. His uncle said, The agency said that it couldn't discuss specific calls. Police haven't said why Jones entered the target with 13 loaded rifle magazines and fired multiple rounds. Dirksen said that he believes his nephew didn't want to carry out a mass shooting, but instead wanted police to kill him. He said his nephew had delusions that the cartel would hurt his family if he didn't kill himself. A timeline released by police made no mention of Jones directly firing at customers or workers. Instead, he fired his AR-15-style rifle into the air and inanimate objects, including a self-checkout and a drink cooler. Authorities ordered him to drop the gun more than 20 times after Jones said, I'll kill you. He was shot once. We do really feel bad for the people who were shot, who were traumatized at Target, and even for the law enforcement officer who was forced to take that shot, Dirksen said.
We know that they did that because they had to. It just should have never been able to get there. Analysis. Biden confronts doubters with State of Union. Washington. Joe Biden has stepped into the restroom for a State of the Union address at what should be the high point of his presidency. He's repeatedly beaten the odds with a string of legislative accomplishments and historically strong midterm election where Democrats held the line against Republicans. His steadfast support for Ukraine has won praise. The Kata pandemic has been lifted. On Tuesday night, he found himself facing a problem that has shadowed him for years. Doubt. Bullshit majority of Americans are largely unaware of his success and has improved his job performance. Even Democrats question whether he should run for re-election amid concerns about his age. It all added up to a particularly high-stakes moment for Biden, providing him with his last base opportunity to make his case for why he deserves a second term before a formal campaign announcement. He has left no doubt that he believes more work to do as president. Addressing Republicans who recently won control of the House, Biden said the people were sent us clear message about the need to find common ground. We have been sent here to finish the job. Although Biden frequently admitted used the language of cooperation, he slipped into a few digs the other party, such as when he talked about Republicans who voted against his infrastructure law but celebrate the money being used in their districts. Don't worry, he said. I promise to be the president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects, and I'll see you at the groundbreaking. At another point, Biden accused Republicans of trying to curtail Social Security and Medicare benefits for older Americans, provoking shouts of liar from his critics. Veering from this text of his speech, Biden responded with a grin. Anybody who doubts it, contact my office, and I'll give you a copy of the proposal. It was a thrust and parry more likely to be found on the debate stage in the State of the Union. Now it's just a matter of waiting for Diamond or Biden to reveal his decision whether he'll run again. He's promised an announcement earlier this year. To that moment when he makes that pronouncement, that's the question that hangs over every word he utters, said Patrick Gisbard, a former White House political director and top official at the Democratic National Committee. Gaspard, who is currently president of the Liberal Central for American Progress, said in the State of Union, is often considered the opening bid of an argument for re-election, and it is in this situation it's certainly the case. American presidents almost never forego a shot at second term. The last one was Lyndon Johnson, who did not seek re-election in 1968 after his presidency became unmourned by the Vietnam War. But there's also never been a president as old as by it. He's 80 and would be 86 at the end of his second term. He first ran for White House in 1988. I'm not due to this place, Biden acknowledged in his speech. I stand here tonight having served as long as one of you has ever served here. Lindsay Chervinsky, a presidential historian, said that Biden's age is the X factor that differentiates him from his predecessors. Even when other presidents faced low approval ratings during the first term, no one was suggesting that they not run. If he was 10 years younger, none of these conversations would be happening, she said. Biden gave a glimpse of his presidential, of his campaign speech on Friday in Philadelphia. When he spoke to a Democratic National Committee meeting, he battled off legislative accomplishments, some of which were achieved after they were left for dead in Congress, and blasted Republicans as extremists, even calling them nuts at one point. Let me ask you a question. Are you with me? He said to the cheering crowd, which responded by chanting, four more years. Political appearances rarely draw the same attention as the State of the Union. Last year, 38 million people turned into, compared to nearly 100 million who watched the Super Bowl. Presidential historian Michael Belkwas said that the challenge is to find the right way to harness the fleeting focus. 
The speech will probably be remembered for two or three lines, he said. He has to decide which he, want, which he wants those to be. Judging by the text, Biden wants that line to f- be, finish the job, a phrase included in less than a dozen times. Whether it's increasing taxes on billionaires, preventing police brutality, or lowering insulin costs, Biden said that he wants to finish the job. It may have not been a campaign announcement, but it's an implicit request for voters to stick with him. Biden planned to travel to Wisconsin on Wednesday and Florida on Thursday to continue pushing his agenda, part of the administration's wide plan for top officials to fan out across the country this week. After a Democratic midterm showing up that was strong by historical adverges and a president's fully first term, Biden has successfully tampered down handwriting within his party over whether he should seek another term. No primary opponent has emerged. And he has a record to build upon. He's also secured investments as infrastructure, computer chip manufacturing, and financial incentives to encourage Americans to adopt cleaner technologies for fighting climate change. However, Biden still faces skepticism from the country at large. Only 37% of Democrats said they want Biden to seek a center, down from 52 before the midterm elections in November, according to a new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Avocado haulers face dangerous roads. Santa Ana, Zufrecito, Mexico, is a long and sometimes dangerous journey for truckers transporting the avocados destined for the guacamole on tables and tailgates in the United States during the Super Bowl. It starts in villages like Santa Ana, Zavisto, high in the misty pine-clad mountains of the western Mexico state of Mico. Con. The roads are so dangerous, beset by drug cartels, common criminals, and exhortation and kidnap games, that state police provided escorts for the trucks brave enough to face the 40-mile trip to packing and shipping plants in the city of Europa. Truck driver Jesus Quintero starts early in the morning, gathering crates of avocados picked up the day before in orchards around Santa Ana before he takes them to the weighing station. Then he joins up with the other trucks waiting for the envoy of blue and white state police trucks that recently changed their name to Civil Guard to start out for Europe. It is more peaceful now with the patrol trucks accompanying us because this is a very dangerous area, Quintero said while waiting for the convoy to pull out. With hundreds of 22 pound crates and the dark green fruit aboard his 10 ton truck, Quintero's load represents a small fortune in these parts. Like avocados sell as much as $2.50 each in the United States. So a single crate holding folder 40 is worth $100, while an average truckload is worth as much as 80000 to 100000 Mexico supplies about 92% of the U.S. avocado imports, selling north over $3 billion worth of the fruit every year. But it's not often that the load is stolen. They would take our trucks and the fruit. Sometimes they take the truck as well. Quintero said they would steal two or three trucks per day in this area. It happened to him years ago. We were coming down a dirt road, and two young guys came out, and they took our truck and tied us up. Such thefts have gone down a lot since the police escort started, Quintero said. They have stolen one or two, one every week, but it's not daily like it used to be. State police officer Jorge Gonzalez said the convoys escort about 40 trucks a day, ensuring that 300 tons of avocados reach the packaging plants each day. These operations have managed to cut the robbery rate by about 90-95%, to Gonzalez said. We accompany them to the packing house so that they can enter the trucks with no problem. Grower Jose Alvisto Valencia is happy he doesn't have to worry about his carefully tended avocados will make it to the packing house. Packers depend on arrangements that they have made with local orchards to fulfill 
To fill promised shipments, and lost avocados can mean lost customers. The main people affected are the producers, Valencia said. People were losing three or four trucks every day. There are a lot of robberies between the orchard and the packing house. The police escorts have helped us a lot, he said. Once the avocados reach Yorapan, or the neighboring city of Tancitaro, a self-proclaimed avocado capital of the world, the greets visitors with giant cement avocado. The path to the north is somewhat safer. The shipment north of avocados for Super Bowl season has become an annual event, this year celebrated in Yorapan. It is welcome diversion for the drumbeat of crimes of the city, which has becoming fought over by the Vircas and the Jalisco Cartels. Sports. LeBron has defined odds with no drop-off in sight. LeBron James is 38 years old. He is season 20 of his NBA career. He is, by conventional basketball playing standards, ancient. History says that his decline should have started already. Except it hasn't. Not even close. And count that just as another example of what set James apart from many other greats. So many of the superstars and their support who were good enough to climb for long enough to climb atop some what list the record books. The NBA's new scoring leader, he caught Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Tuesday night. One Los Angeles Lakers great taking the record from another is still one of the very best in the game. He is talking about playing two more years, three more years, maybe more. He could raise his scoring record so high that by the time he retires, it would be at best highly unrealistic for anyone to catch him. I know I'm still playing at a high level. I've been able to do some incredible things this league. James said after he scored 38 points on his record setting night to lift his career total to 38,390,000. Three more than Abdul Jabbar, reign atop the NBA scoring list, ended after almost 39 years. And hopefully, I can do some more incredible things before I'm done. The unfortunate part about the most longevity records like this, young athletes don't set them. By design, they're usually broken by athletes who are near the end of their career. Take Pete Rose, for example. Rose got his 4,192nd career hit, a record breaker, the one where he passed Ty Cobb's official total. Some say Rose actually had the record a few weeks earlier, but the recognized number for core by Major League Baseball remains 4,191 hits on September 11th, 1985. At the moment, when Rose lined that hit off with Eric Show, he was at a .304 career hitter. But after that record started, he batted .225 for the remainder of his career. In fairness, he was 44 and 45 years old during the stint of batting .225. He slowed down. It happens to everyone. Well, almost everyone. I think about the wear and tear on LeBron's body and the lack of sleep in the three and a half games a week, season after season, how he takes care of himself. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said... If the young players play attention to that, everyone who's been around LeBron, he's always working on his body. Tiger Woods got 79 wins in the N- in the 295th PGA Tour starts between 1996 and 2013, a ridiculously high for a golf 27% winning rate. Since then, after the course injuries and with a slew of injuries, Woods has won three times in 62 states. He has tied Sam Seed for the all-time records on tour with 82. No one would dare doubt that Woods would find a way to get one more win and claim the record outright, but few would also say that it should be considered unlikely. Wayne Gertzee caught Gordie Howe for the all-time NHL goals record and was still every bit the great one, his moniker for decades now. But the last five seasons after settling the record, Krasinski production predictably dipped a bit. He averaged 0.25 goals and did 1.1 points per game over the last five seasons at the ages of 34 and through 38. For that, he averaged 0.71 goals and 2.2 points per game. 
Even Abdul-Jabbar, after catching with Wilt Chamberlain in 1984, saw his numbers decrease. Before the record, Abdul-Jabbar averaged 27 points, afterwards 17.7 points. Kareem was a great player his entire career, even after settling the record, said Pat Riley, his coach with the Lakers and the now president of the Miami Heat. The record didn't change anything for him. There are two notable exceptions to the notion that player production almost always must drop off settling records. James is the first one. Kobe Bryant averaged 17.6 records in his 20 season, a record for anyone who played that deep into their NBA career. It won't be a record much longer. James is averaging, averaging 30 per game in his 20th season. The other exception is Tom Brady. The recently retired seven-time Super Bowl champion never slowed down the catching Drew Brees for three of the biggest records of quarterback can. Most completions, most touchdowns, most yards. Consider what Brady did his season at his 23rd at 45 years old. 4,694 yards, 25 touchdown passes, a career and best league high, 490 completions, a career and best league high, 733 attempts. It may not have been his best year, but it was incredibly prolific. There's always going to be a part of me that wants to play and part of me that feels like I can't play Brady said on his Let's Go podcast when explaining his retirement decision. I think there's no decision to know that it's the right time. I think it's for me. I think it's going to at some point announce a time. Brady never dropped off. Ever. So far, we can say the same about James. He continues to defy Father Time. And now sit back and watch how many points he adds to this total. Barring injury, 40,000 points will happen. If he plays two or three more seasons, 42,000 or 43,000 isn't unthinkable. He's going to extend his record even further. Abdullah Jabbar said that TNT after the game Tuesday night, and it'll be interesting to see how far it goes. Super Bowl. Jones set a high sex standard for Chiefs. Phoenix. Chris Jones claims to have little memory of a relatively benign game in 2017 when the Kansas City Chiefs welcomed the Philadelphia Eagles to Airhead Stadium for the second game of the regular season. Jason Kielst remembers it quite well. The veteran Philadelphia center spent the afternoon lining up alongside Isaac Sermula, who Jones proceeded to whip from start to finish. Then a relatively unknown second-year defensive tackle, Jones piled up three sacks that day. Sir Mungo played a guy early on that nobody knew about that was, when you know, the best defensive tackle in the NFL, Kels recalled. I mean, I'm sure you remember going to that game, but we didn't really talk much about Chris, to be honest with you. We didn't have much of a plan for him because he wasn't going to be much of a big deal. And man, Kels said, Isaac was a heart outing. You can bet the Eagles will have a better plan for dealing with Jones in the Super Bowl on Sunday. In five-plus years since the game in Kansas City, the eligible Pam Rusher has grown to rival Rams' Aaron Donald, as just what Kels said, the NFL's best defensive tackle. He's gone to the past four Pro Bowls, was voted second-term All-Pro three times, and this year earned first-team honors, along with being the finalist for AP Defensive of the Year. He will learn whether he takes home that hardware the NFL honors for Thursday night. He's so good, man. He makes it so hard on you, said Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, who was sacked twice by Jones in the AFC, AFC title game. He's so big and strong, physical. He really understands what you're trying to do in front of him. In truth, nobody has quite figured out what to do with him. Jones has 15 and a half sacks this season, despite facing constant double teams, matching the 2018 season for the best of his career. He trailed only the 49ers Nick Bosa, the Browns Miles Garrett, and the Eagles Harrison Reddick for NFL lead. Jones was also a big reason why the Chiefs, one of the league's worst at rushing the pass her last season suddenly became one of the best. They had 55 sacks in the regular season to trail for their Super Bowl opponent for the league.
He opens up a lot of opportunities for those with guys inside, especially when he's causing so much attention to come his way, said the Chiefs defensive end Frank Clark, who has two and a half sacks in this postseason. We speak on it and harp on it with the interior guys. You know, it's like Chris getting double teamed. That's usually the best approach. Jones seems to get up near the quarterback anyway. He's game-wrecking type force up front, Bengals offered coordinator Brian Callahan said. You have to be aware of what he lines up. He lines up at the end in the shade in the three technique. An extremely disruptive player, so you do everything you can to minimize him, but he's going to have one at some point. The task for the Eagles, and what the Bengals fail to do, is to limit Jones to just one play. He's a fantastic player, Callahan said. He's not fun to have to get ready for. He's going to have fun in the locker room, though. Jones is among the most lighthearted chiefs, constantly trying to get the guys to smile. He wants to up to practice shortly before Christmas, ugly Christmas sweater, with a sticks picture of Jesus carrying the label, birthday boy. His own team smile seems to stretch from one end of the room to the other. On the field, though, the good-natured goof suddenly becomes a colossus. All that explains why the Chiefs lavished on the 28-year-old Jones an $80 million for a year's deal with a couple of years ago, which included a $1.25 million bonus when Jones hit 10 sacks this season. His salary cap hit is tops among the defensive tackles, edging Donald into Forrest Buckner, yet somehow seems like a bargain given his production. And with one year left in the contract with on Sunday, there's a good chance that the Chiefs will begin talking about extension soon. They haven't already, if they haven't started those discussions already. In the meantime, Jones will try to capture a second super time ring when the Chiefs take on the Eagles on Sunday. He knows much of their success will depend on whether he can pressure Philadelphia quarterbacks. Jalen Hurts, whose uncanny ability to shred defenses with his arm and leg makes him difficult to defend. Every week is a challenge for me, especially when you're playing in the Super Bowl. It's the best of the best, Jones said Wednesday, so we're very fortunate and excited about it. Jason Kelce has that amazing offensive line, and we got to see what kind of pressure we can bring up against it. Movie reveal. Final Magic Might is out of step. Latest installment lacks trilogy's spirit. Call it a cultural reset or a vibe ship, but there's no denying that that is before Magic Mike and there's after Magic Mike. One can even point to a specific infection point in Steven Soderbergh's 2012 male stripper drama that was lightly culled from star Jenny Tatum's own experience in an all-male revenue. The scene in which Tatum, as aforementioned Mike, performs a solo number to Gwynny's pony as Cody Hornsbrook looks on from the crowd. It's not just the hypnotic fluidity of Tatum's hips and torso, but the way that Squirrelbird cut backs to Brooke, our gaze becoming her gaze, her frown offering dramatic irony to the visual splendor that is Tatum's body in motion. The scene is directly referenced in the sequel, Magic Mike XXL, which Joe Maynard dances in a gas station while trying to inspire the stone-faced cleric to crack. These two scenes offer a unifying theory in which these scenes are trying to achieve, making women smile. With Magic Mike, Swinburne allowed the female gaze to take center stage, and with his indie amateur brand, he also made it cool for the straight film bros to get in on the fun, too. Magic Mike is a movie about male strippers, but it's also about post-recession financial drama, about how sex and nihilism, and how labor and identity are inexplicably linked. 2015's XXL, also written by Magic Mike writer Reed Carolyn, but directed by Gregory Jacobs, Jet and synth the socioeconomic themes for feminism, putting female pleasure front and pleasure as the boys went on the road during tour of private shows featuring the bombastic of the Bonsana of Bots. This unlikely franchise has gone on to spawn live shows in Las Vegas and London and HBO Max reality show Finding Magic Mike. For the first 
Third film in the trilogy, Magic Mike's Last Dance, Caroline has once again penned the script and Swedberg has returned behind the camera, literally, as he shot the film under his cinematographer alienist, Peter Andrews. The game is back together for its one last crime. Unfortunately, the magic is that was sparked in 2012 is nowhere to be found. Magic Mike's Last Dance is a profoundly odd film that contrasts its production constraints, including the fact that large scenes were likely a challenge shot during the pandemic and star Selma Hayek replaced then Wendy Newton during the development, triggering an extensive rewrite. Haywood plays Max Sandra Mendoza, a wealthy divorcee, getting her growth back when she meets Mike bartending at her Miami fundraiser. She offers him six grand for a lap dance, and when he delivers one-of-a-kind sensual counter that utilizes every architectural accent in her house, Max decides she's got to bring the magic to the masses. She whisks Mike away to London, where they'll put on a one-night-only cabaret in the style of the Moulin Rouge or Crazy Horse, a plot that feels like a glorified ad for the Magic Mike life show. Every scene between Tatum and Hawk feels improvised, or at least wildly underwritten. In a way, it allows their personalities to shine. He's still an adorable himbo with swag. She's passionate, vivacious, and also married to an absurdly rich European man in real life. But their circular conversations about whether to put on a show or fall in love are still to find. We also can discover that in Last Dance, the magic cannot survive a Mike alone. The fun of these two movies came from the guys and their camaraderie and joy. Mike was surrounded by a crew of hunks who happened to be characters. In Last Dance, there are a lot of abs to Google, but not a single personality to be found. This final installment finds Sodenberg and Tatum toying with audience expectations and disappointing results. There are a few flashes of the original movie, but it's lacking the energy that made the first two movies a thrill. After the cultural recent of Magic Mike, The Last Dance just doesn't bring the heat. And that brings us to the end of... Today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Feb- Thursday, February 9th, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Cammie from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.